This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome to It's All Political, the San Francisco Chronicle's political podcast. I'm Joe Garofoli, the Chronicle's senior political writer, and today our guest is East Bay Congressman Eric Swalwell. He was in the middle of the impeachment hearings as a member of both the House Intelligence and Judiciary Committees, and he's written a new book about it, Endgame, Inside the Impeachment of Donald J. Trump. Swalwell takes us backstage at the investigations, including where he thinks Special Prosecutor Robert Mueller fell short. Swalwell also tells us that he thinks Trump may be difficult to remove from the White House if he loses in November. And he offers his thoughts on two women he knows very well who could be the Democratic vice presidential nominee. Not only do we have a special guest today, we have a special guest host, my friend, the Chronicle's editorial page editor, John Diaz. And now, here's John's conversation with Congressman Eric Swalwell. Well, Congressman Eric Swalwell, welcome. Appreciate you taking the time uh, this afternoon. Thanks, John. We're here to talk about your new book, Endgame, which I found a really fascinating primer on both the Mueller investigation and the impeachment case. And another thing that I thought was really interesting about it was sort of the interpersonal dynamics that you see in Congress, the strategies and counter strategies behind the scenes, but also the relations that you have with your colleagues. Let me start by asking you, what inspired you to write the book? Um, as I'm sure a publisher, publisher asked you early on, what is what was your target audience here? Well, you know, my constituents uh, who asked me the day after you know, the president was elected, like, what can we do? Uh, and, you know, I, I told them all along, well, we're not helpless. We can first elect a, a majority in the Congress, check the president. And now you know, he's, he's up for his you know, reelection. Uh, the country, uh, you know, to understand that it doesn't have to be uh, this way, that, you know, we can redeem uh, this country. And uh, if we don't, uh, it's only going to get worse. And so, you know, I kind of pose that there's two end games in sight. Uh, you know, in, in chess, end game is, you know, what happens just before, uh, you know, the last move. And the end game could be uh, an extension of what we're seeing now and, and drifting into autocracy, or it could be redeeming in democracy and uh, putting back together uh, the pieces. But John, it was also a tribute to my dad. I wanted to write a book about my dad. I've always wanted to write a book about him. He was a deputy sheriff in Alameda County and then uh, was a, a police officer and a police chief in Iowa. And I learned early on about him losing his job as a police chief because he stood up against a corrupt mayor and a corrupt city council because they wanted him to fix parking tickets and look the other way on some of the crimes in town. And that lesson uh, at five years old uh, stayed with me that no one's above the law. And I don't think my dad ever imagined that, you know, nearly 34 years later after that happened, that his son uh, would be making the same point, but not about a small town mayor, but the president of the United States is not above the law. In fact, you detailed that in the book, which I thought was quite, quite interesting. 
Let me ask you, is, if I could start with kind of a bottom line question. You know, you certainly spent a, a lot of effort on both uh, the Mueller investigation and then the uh, impeachment investigation dealing with the Ukraine quid pro quo. Uh, but ultimately, um, Donald Trump is still president of the United States. Uh, what do you think in retrospect that could have been done differently that might have either changed some of those Republican uh, Republicans who stood by him or the nation as a whole? You know, I, I asked myself that a lot during impeachment and after. And, and now, John, in the midst of a pandemic, uh, had we waited a week or two later, I don't even know if the president would have been uh, impeached. Right. Because if you look at the, the way this the timing ended up uh, being, uh, you know, the pandemic was just beginning to be fully understood uh, as the senators were voting on uh, you know, guilt. Uh, and so. I don't think we would have impeached him in a pandemic. We probably would have rightfully focused on the pandemic first. Um, so, you know, each each decision that we made, you know, during the investigation and the articles, you know, we knew that there were just witnesses we could not hear from. And, and if the choice was wait and see what the courts do, or move to try and hold him accountable, we, we just felt too much was on the line to wait and, and look right now where we are. We are still waiting for the Supreme Court to rule on the Mazars decision uh, and the Deutsche Bank decision around the president's taxes. And the Supreme Court has not yet uh, even decided on the Don McGahn case. And so uh, if we'd waited for the courts, you know, it would be June now and, and we wouldn't have resolution on the authority of a, a congressional a subpoena. And we felt like we had enough. We didn't have everything we wanted, but it would have been irresponsible to just wait. You point out in the book that uh, you note that on July 25th uh, last year, the very day after uh, you know Mueller testified, that's when the Ukraine phone call came up. Uh, I want to ask you first about the, the, the Mueller investigation, why that did not lead to impeachment. I my theory is that there were really two turning points. One is when Attorney General William Barr uh, gave the summary, which was very misleading, but nevertheless, for many weeks on, gave Trump and his uh, and his um, and his allies a chance to say no collusion, no obstruction before anyone had seen the report. And of course, the other was Mueller's testimony itself, which, at least from a as you point out in the book, from a theatrical standpoint, was 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 a flop. I think that's right. Uh, but I did point out also in the book that um, despite, you know, the the news reporting, you know, that Mueller's performance didn't meet the expectations. When you actually looked at the numbers uh, in my caucus uh, of people who signed on to impeachment, uh, there was a, a dramatic uh, increase uh, post Mueller's testimony. So even though, you know, he was not regarded as you know delivering uh, what people expected in the public, I think my colleagues, for many of them, that got us, you know, across uh, the threshold of a majority of uh, Democrats supporting impeachment. And then, of course, there was the revelation of the Zelensky call. But I, I think, uh, John, with Bob Mueller, what was most frustrating was that uh, he did not look at the president's uh, finances uh, at all. And he never interviewed the president. And I, I don't want to second guess such an honorable man or give equivalence between Mueller and Trump. Um, but the president got in his head, and I, I talked about that in the book, that uh, one of the brilliant tactics the president is able to deploy is that he can accuse you of doing something you have not yet done, and then 
you start second guessing yourself about whether you are validating something the president is accusing you of. For example, in 2016, when Trump was saying the election was going to be rigged over and over, we found in our Russia investigation that there was a hesitancy to attribute the attack to Russia and a hesitancy to have, uh, you know, a, a more public naming and shaming uh, of Russia because there was a fear that it could feed into Donald Trump's accusations that uh, Russia, that the election would be rigged, obviously, in his favor. And so he's able to get people who are responsible and, and experienced uh, to kind of do what he wants them to do. And I think with Mueller, by saying it was a witch hunt and that it was going too long and that looking at the finances would be a red line, I think it got in their head. And, and for no good reason other than they would prove Donald Trump right, even though the right thing to do would have been to go after his finances and put him in an interview chair. One of the things I liked about your book, uh, Congressman, uh, as being someone who, who follows the news fairly closely, obviously I was familiar at least with uh, from the outside looking in, uh, was your description of some of your relationships with the co- your colleagues, you know, your description of Adam Schiff, the, the friendship you had with him and the, his ability. I didn't realize uh, on all those very eloquent statements that he was making, that he was doing it without notes. Uh, you talked about him and you uh, also there's quite a bit about in there about Nancy Pelosi and what a masterful tactician she was and how as impeachment went, she was very disciplined in making sure that you and other members of uh, of the House uh, caucus would talk about the other things that, that you were doing to kind of take away that talking point. Uh, how. How comfortable were you in, in talking about uh, your colleagues and the relationship with them? Yeah, you know, you, you don't want to betray any confidences, but I, I also felt when you asked earlier, you know, why did I write this book? You know, I, I felt a responsibility to to history. You know, I was privileged to be a part, a small part of you know, a historical uh, impeachment and was able to sit next to Speaker Pelosi uh, during, you know, every a steering and policy meeting. I chair the steering and policy committee. We meet once a week, uh, the first night that we're back in Washington and, and she sits just to my right uh, and, you know, able to observe her lead the caucus through impeachment. And, you know, for her, like it was something we had to do, but she didn't, she didn't want it to define our majority. And she was sincere uh, in that all along the way, just hammering two members to talk about what we're doing on healthcare to talk about, you know, what we've already uh, passed. And, um, you know, that, that's leadership. She's not a breaking news speaker, uh, meaning she doesn't, you know, turn on the TV and see a breaking news story and say, we have to react to this right now. She has a plan. She knows where she wants to take uh, the country and, and her caucus, and she sticks to it. She, she's so focused and you know, has a vision. And um, you don't see people like that very often uh, but she certainly was, keeps track of the news eric you mentioned the uh the time that uh, you were on the 11th hour with brian williams in <laughs> the next morning uh that you struggled to stay awake for it and yet she had uh commented on it yes uh she she seems to be uh omnipresent and you know she she has a good handle of you know where her members are and that's the special thing about being a speaker you know she's not She's not only uh, Nancy Pelosi, the member of Congress for San Francisco. She has to reflect where her constituents are. But to lead the caucus as a speaker, you know, she has to know where 
every member is to, you know, get those votes uh, to pass legislation. And that's a very difficult, uh, difficult job. And she you know, has proven over and over that she can do it. Congressman, you had some uh, spare, but I thought telling passages about some of your interactions with the Republicans on the committee who were so vitriolic uh, in the open session. Uh, you know, you talked about uh, being on the in the gym next to uh, Jim Jordan on the uh, elliptical machine or encountering Doug Collins in the uh, coming out of the, out of the restroom. Um, what you described, it seemed to me, is a long way from the days when members of Congress might have strongly different views, but were really had a collegial relationship. It sounds like things are pretty darn frosty there on Capitol Hill. Oh, oh yes, uh, it's bad, John. Um, and I went to Congress. You know, I ran against a 40-year incumbent who was regarded as the most liberal member of Congress by most rankings, and as the son of you know two Republicans. Uh, I wanted to do all I could to try and you know, build consensus. And I formed a caucus called the United Solutions Caucus and, and worked with freshmen, Republicans and Democrats. And then something changed when Donald Trump was elected. And, and I talk about it in the book that in the fog after the 2016 election, I sought to set up an independent commission because I saw how successful it was after September 11. I wanted an independent commission to look at what Russia had done so it would never happen again. And I saw Republicans, friends of mine, you know, express concern as well about what Russia had done. But when I tried to press them to join me, uh, to just have an independent commission outside Congress, that's where you could tell they were afraid of the president. And they would say things like, well, if he tweets, he wins. Or I've already had my head lopped off because I went against him during the presidential primary. But they still would privately express concern. And that over time, and this is the question I get the most from people is, Please tell me that behind the scenes, they know how destructive uh, and reckless the president is. And I tell them, I, I wish I could say that's the case, but that's that's not the case. Now they're they're just enablers uh, and they're not in denial anymore. They're full on enabling him. And what I miss the most uh, is having those uh, relationships uh, that I think have been freighted. It's not just for me. I, I think a lot of my colleagues you know, miss that. And I hope that if we do have the House, the White House and the Senate in 2021, that there are sincere efforts on our side to reach out uh, and try and rebuild some of those relationships, because I think the country will really want that. After a short break, Swalwell talks about how the coronavirus pandemic can change Congress in a good way. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. And now, here's more of John Diaz's conversation with Congressman Eric Swalwell. On a personal note, Congressman, uh, I'm thinking if somebody is is reading this book, thinking about uh, running for Congress, uh, one of the things you really spell out is the impact on your family. Uh, you were first elected to, to Congress, a young single single man. Now you have uh, a family, and you talked about you wrote about the burden on your wife Brittany. Uh, those, those precious moments with your, your son Nelson where you were, he was either 
you're getting you up very early on a critical day of a hearing or when you're rushing to pick him up between committee hearings. Uh, what, I mean, it definitely is difficult on, on a young family uh, as yours. What do you think Congress can do to make itself more family friendly? Uh, well, it, it took a pandemic for this to happen, but embrace uh, technologies. Uh, and if you remember, John, one of my first uh, bills as a freshman at, at 31 with no wife, no kids, uh, was uh, to have a remote capability for us to meet remotely if needed on committee and also to vote remotely uh, if on the consensus bills, the consent calendar, so to speak, that we had. And I would get five or six co-sponsors, and it was panned as, oh, he's just a millennial who doesn't want to meet in person. He's of the Facebook generation. He just wants to do everything virtually. And when the pandemic happened, you know, I, I thought this was an opportunity to, you know, dust off that uh, legislation and, and propose it again and worked uh, actually with Katie Porter, a single mom of three kids uh, who was elected in 2018. And now, you know, I have you know, two, a three-year-old and a one-year-old, my wife uh, works on the road and travels uh, almost as often as I do for her job. And so I thought, well, this is one family-friendly uh, policy, but in a pandemic, giving us this capability uh, certainly will allow us to be more agile and responsive uh, to the needs. But I, I want us to attract, you know, the best and brightest uh, and diverse uh, that we can, diversity that we can in the country. And I, I'm afraid that if we don't have some remote capabilities for young families that we could see people just take a pass when their communities would really need them. I, I couldn't help but note that, that your chapter on your run for president was seven pages of the 321 <laughs> pages. Was that a matter of modesty or uh, humility or you just didn't have that many great stories to tell or uh, why only seven pages? You were candidate for president of the United States. Yeah, and it felt like it only lasted about, you know, seven pages. I, I ran to win and I wanted to make a difference. And the hardest part was facing the reality that it just wasn't taking. And, you know, we were not going to be able to, you know, meet the continued thresholds to be on the debate stage. And I didn't want to drag my family, my staff, my supporters, my constituents through something that was just an absolute uh, long shot. And as I mentioned in the book, at the, you know, in June, at the end of June, uh, when we had the first debate, that's when we finally had uh, procured the Mueller uh, testimony. Uh, and so I got out uh, the second week of July and, you know, a couple of weeks later, Bob Mueller sitting before us. And it, that seems like of, of all the things I've done in the last couple of years, running for president was important. The issue of gun violence, I'll continue to work on. Uh, but, um, I think it, it, it takes its appropriate place uh, in the book uh, and the, move on. The, those debates were tough with so many candidates on stage. And, and Kamala Harris, you know, two Alameda County prosecutors uh, on that stage. I was proud to stand, you know, with her because we both, you know, really take pride in, in coming out of that office. And, um, you know, she's on the short list for being vice president. You think she would make a good candidate for vice president? Yes. Yeah. And, and the other person that I've worked with that I really admire and have come to know um, is Val Demings uh, on the Judiciary Committee, you know, former police chief of Orlando. Uh, and uh, certainly with you know these conversations in our country about policing uh, and the black community, um, you know, I, I've been up close and personal with Val uh, because she and I are the only two Democrats on both judiciary and the intelligence uh, committee. 
Um, and she's the real deal. And uh, both, uh, I've been able to work with both uh, Kamala and Val, and we would be blessed and fortunate to have either of them as uh, our nominee. You mentioned in a number of points in the book that the Trump White House is basically uh, a crime spree in progress, uh, which is one of the reasons you saw the urgency for impeachment. Uh, you also mentioned it as a source of concern for this November election that he would do anything to win. Are you seeing evidence of that? Yes. Uh, in fact, uh, I believe the continue. We saw that in California a couple of weeks ago when we had a special election uh, in early May in the 25th district, and because of COVID, it was a 100% mail-in uh, balloting election. And the president repeatedly was saying that the outcome was going to be fraudulent because of mail-in ballots. Of course, the Republican won, and then he never said another thing about uh, that race. Um, but I, I think what he's doing is he's seeding the doubt uh, that he will uh, call on uh, if he does lose. Uh, and I, I, I don't see him as leaving office uh, peacefully. I don't see that tradition of a peaceful transfer of power happening. I, I see him, uh, you know, protesting that it's a fraudulent election, uh, filing frivolous lawsuits. And, and my fear and a chief security officer, a uh, former chief security officer from a uh, Fortune 100 company uh, told me two weeks ago that his biggest fear is that outside interference in this election will not come during the election uh, period, that it will come in the interim period between uh, election day and inauguration day, because that's when our adversaries will recognize uh, that'll be uh, so uh, intense and Americans could be so divided that if you were to amplify the president's you know, bogus claims at that point, uh, that would be the most effective. And it gave me goosebumps to hear that. And while we're a country where you only need the majority to win, I think a lot of Democrats feel like we need a super majority to win because it can't be close. Uh, it can't be close for the courts because it, we don't have a court that we can count on, I believe, in the Supreme Court. And it can't be close, as Vice President Biden was alluding to today, for the military officer who may have to physically pull the president out uh, if he refuses to leave. Do you think it would literally be that traumatic? I mean, I've uh, the peaceful transition of power in this country is just something wonderful to behold. I was there in 1980 when... Uh, Jimmy Carter left and Ronald Reagan came in. Obviously, you were there for the uh, Obama to uh, Trump transition. Do you th do you think it, this won't just be a matter of court battles, but you know, physical conflict? So in the book, in the book, John, I, I mentioned that I actually think when push comes to shove with the president, um, he's a coward and that he backs down. Uh, and so I actually think that that may prove true here that he wouldn't actually go that far because uh, I, I don't think he is as tough as he wants us all to believe. But my real fear, though, is that if he is refusing to accept the outcome of the election, I mean, what happens if that, you know, those militia men who were going to Michigan uh, with their assault rifles to protest having to stay indoors or the people who went to Virginia to protest the gun safety laws that were being passed with their rifles? What happens if those folks think that they have to go to the White House, you know, to protect the president? Um, it's really scenes like that 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 worry me is that he could uh, take ordinary Americans and make them believe that, you know, there's some sort of coup in place and that they would do all they could to uh, protect him. That's why you count on the candidate who's losing to gracefully uh, acknowledge defeat and move on. 
And if he doesn't do that, uh, you could see, you know, people who have already shown a willingness, you know, to take their weapons to state capitals to come to Washington. So that's what I'm thinking about as I think this through uh, and, and the power of his words uh, and what could happen. And, and that's that's worrisome. You note in your book that one possible uh, source of his desperation is that he could have criminal exposure once he leaves office. Uh, where do you think he's vulnerable legally to being prosecuted uh, as a former president? I believe, uh, first and foremost, he's vulnerable for obstruction uh, of Congress uh, and you know obstruction of justice for what he did uh, in the Mueller investigation. And, and Bob Mueller, in his report, said that there were at least 10 instances and so he would still be subject to those if he was not reelected. If he's reelected, uh, he will uh, outlive the statute of limitations uh, on those. Uh, of course, there's uh, the individual one issue that he has uh, with the Michael Cohen case. Um, and so I, I think at least on those two. But, you know, what's interesting, I asked the FBI director on the Judiciary Committee if considering that the president cannot be charged with the crime, if they would even investigate him for a crime and then kind of keep it on the shelf and then take it off if he was ever to come out of office to take it to a prosecutor. And, you know, I don't know if, you know, the FBI doesn't talk about ongoing investigations, um, but I couldn't glean from the director, you know, what the policy would be. Uh, and, and I said, just take Trump out of this, just any president, knowing that the policy is you can't indict him, would you still look and work up an investigation? And so I, I, I don't know what else if they're not doing investigations because they don't think they could indict him. You would almost have he would be subject to probably a lot from what he's done in office. Um, but all that said, John, I, I hope that we go back to seeing the independence of prosecutor offices. I don't think politicians should be influencing who or how someone's prosecuted. And I trust that a President Biden uh, would restore that and the president would be treated just as fair as any other suspect. Uh, in a criminal case. Congressman, one thing we've seen in the last month or so is uh, Trump's approval ratings have taken quite a quite a hit. Uh, usually when you have a nation in crisis, Americans tend to rally around their president. Well, right now we have the three crises at once, the pandemic and economic collapse, you know, the civil unrest. Uh, why do you think people are not rallying behind uh, the president here? And, and what do you think this pretends for the election? He hasn't asked them. He <laughs> He hasn't asked them to rally together uh, as a country. And I, I was, you know, 20 uh, as a Capitol Hill intern for uh, the late Ellen Tauscher uh, when September 11th happened. And I was working in a Democratic office, uh, but uh, I, I and many Democrats, you know, rallied behind President Bush when he, you know, went to the rubble at the World Trade Center and held the microphone, the bullhorn up and said, to the firefighters, I, I can hear you. Um, that was a, a moment in our country. And for, uh, you know, a couple of years, we were all behind the president and he enjoyed, uh, you know, approval ratings above 80 percent. I think this president could have done that uh, in the in the covid crisis. Uh, in, instead, again, he you know rejected uh, the science. He insulted the governors who were taking steps to try and uh, keep all of us safe. He called it a democratic hoax because he saw that an economic collapse could hurt his presidency. And I think it's just that he. He hasn't asked. It's just, and whenever he sees, you know, division, he widens it and instead of trying to bring us together. Along those lines, Congressman, if I can ask you a final question, uh, this nation is very deeply polarized, probably in some ways as polarized as we've been, maybe even since the Civil War. 
Uh, what do you think can be done to change that, to bring Americans together? Listen to each other, continue to have uh, conversations, you know, with people that we don't agree with. Uh, I happen to be, I, I, my parents are Republicans. My brothers, most of them are Republicans. My in-laws in Indiana, uh, you know, I, my father-in-law um, is a Trump supporter. And my wife grew up with the Pence family. And I actually learn a lot talking to my father-in-law, father-in-law about their perspective. And uh, sometimes I'll even admit that um, it'll change the way that I, you know, view an issue or a way that I, you know, will call out the president. You don't have to attack him for every single thing you disagree with, because then people like me just can't tell the difference. Um, so I think listening more uh, to each other is important. But I, I think for Vice President Biden, if he does become president, I would strongly encourage him uh, to put together a team of rivals uh, in his cabinet, and not just one Republican, uh, but really put together a team of rivals of Republicans and Democrats uh, to lead the country forward. And I think he would find the American people and, and the Congress uh, would embrace that and it would pick us up out of this uh, divisive hole that we've fallen into. Congressman, thank you so much for taking the time to speak uh, today. And uh, congratulations on your new book, uh, Endgame, Inside the Impeachment of Donald J. Trump. Congressman, thank you. Of course. Thank you, John. I'd like to thank Congressman Eric Swalwell for coming back on the podcast today. His book, Endgame, Inside the Impeachment of Donald J. Trump, is available wherever you obtain books. I'd like to thank John Diaz for guest hosting the podcast again today. And I'd like to thank the King, King Kaufman, for producing today's episode. And remember, whether you leave office peacefully or have to be dragged out kicking and screaming, it's all political. It's All Political is a production of the San Francisco Chronicle. Our executive editor is Audrey Cooper. Our theme music, our wonderful theme music that I love, it gets me jazzed up, is Cattle Call, written by Randy Clark and performed by Randy Clark and Croson. Support It's All Political and the newsroom that creates it by signing up for a Chronicle membership. It's very easy. You just go to sfchronicle.com slash pod.